Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm delighted you're joining us this week. And if you don't already subscribe, please do subscribe to Free Expression wherever you get your podcasts. This week, as he stands on the threshold of high office yet again, I'm talking with once and future Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was first elected Prime Minister in 1996, and then after a period of opposition again in 2009, he led his Likud party last month to victory in the Knesset, securing the largest number of seats in the Israeli parliament. That gave him the opportunity to form a coalition government with the right-wing religious Zionism party, which in partnership with another radical right-wing party, gained significant seats in the Israeli parliamentary elections. Now, he's still in the process of forming that government, but he does seem to be making progress with some key appointments already agreed, including top representatives of those religious parties in important security positions. Now, that's a move that has some in the US and elsewhere around the world concerned about the prospects for stability and peace in the West Bank and the wider Middle East. Mr. Netanyahu is also out with an autobiography, My Life, in which he reviews his many and varied careers as a soldier, businessman, diplomat, and of course, a political and national leader, the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. And Benjamin Netanyahu joins me now. Prime Minister, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, I want to talk about your book, your autobiography, and the long career and the various different guises in your career that you review in that book. But if I may, I want to start with what's going on right now in Israel. I know you're in the process of attempting to form a coalition government, and there are some things that I suspect are still difficult to talk about in great detail. But one thing we do know is that you have secured agreement with other parties, in particular the religious Zionist party, and including giving some important security positions to the leader of that party. As you know, that's caused some concern in other parts of the world. I'm wondering what exactly this coalition, if you're able to form it, what exactly will be the posture that this coalition takes towards the issue, particularly of the West Bank, of Israeli settlements there, and indeed of the whole larger Palestinian question? Well, the position that I've uh, taken over the years, these parties join me. I'm not joining them. My party, the Likud, is by far the largest party in the country, in the uh, parliament, and our positions and my policies are the ones that will follow. Those policies say that we seek peace with the Palestinians, a peace that we can live with literally and not die with. And the reason we haven't had peace with the Palestinians all these years is because the Palestinians regrettably, are governed by leaders who don't want peace. They want a peace not with Israel, but without Israel. They don't want a state next to Israel. They want a state instead of Israel. So that's the reason we haven't had peace with successive governments. You know, everybody said for a while, when I was first elected uh, prime minister, remember, this is the sixth time that I form a government. When I was first elected, people said, oh, he's the obstacle to peace. Well, I lost. And then came uh, several uh, prime ministers after me from the left, and they didn't make peace with the Palestinians. And the reason they didn't make peace with the Palestinians is, again, because of the Palestinians. And everybody said, you can't break peace to the remainder of the Arab world, which is 98% of the Arabs are not Palestinians. There are 21 Arab countries. People said, you can't make peace with the rest of the Arab world unless you first make peace with the Palestinians. That was an impossible obstacle, because no matter how much was offered to them by my successor, Omer, for example, offered them everything. They still would not accept anything. 
because they want the dissolution of Israel. I decided to go around the Palestinians, not wait for another half century until we make peace with another Arab state. And as a result, we made the historic Abraham Accords with four Arab states. And I believe that's the way to go. We're open to genuine negotiations with the Palestinians if they finally recognize the right of the Jewish state to exist. But we're not going to wait for them. And having made peace with the United Arab Emirates, with Morocco, with Bahrain, with Sudan, I am eager to pursue a broader peace that will end the Arab-Israeli conflict, probably circle back then to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But if the Palestinians are ready to come before, we'll do it, including this government. Nonetheless, it was a feature of last month's elections. Obviously, Likud, you won the largest number of seats. But these big advances by these religious parties, in particular the religious Zionists and the Jewish Power Party, and they are associated with people, the leaders, people like Bezalel Smotrich and, of course, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who have occupied a pretty prominent position as radical and outspoken views on the proper approach to Israeli settlements in the West Bank and, indeed, on the proper approach to the whole Arab world as a whole. Isn't there, to some extent, by including these parties in your government, isn't there a recognition to some extent, and again, given their strong performance in the elections, isn't there a recognition that actually this is going to be a a somewhat different approach from the one that we've seen recently in terms of dealing with the question of the West Bank in particular and the Palestinians more generally? Well, not really, because the outgoing government didn't change the policies vis-a-vis Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, and I'll tell you why. Because the argument that the left has been pushing in the international community, many in the international community, and the pundits don't take any offense, have been putting over the years is, look, if you just give the Palestinians more land, you're going to get peace. But every time we gave them land, we didn't get peace, we got terror. Not only did we get terror, when we vacated territories in Gaza, we got Iran. Iran through its proxy Hamas. We left Lebanon, we got Iran through its proxy Hezbollah. And given that Israel is so tiny, and the entire area that includes Israel and Judea Samaria, the West Bank, is roughly the diameter of the Washington Beltway. We can't just leave there and let Iran enter the outskirts of Tel Aviv, because what happens is we don't get peace, we get terror. The Palestinians get subjugated by these Islamist dictatorships, so nobody benefits. The way we'll get peace with the Palestinians, and I think it'll happen after we make many more peace treaties with the Arab world, the way we're going to get peace is to let the Palestinians have all the powers they need to govern themselves and none of the powers that could threaten our existence. And that requires something less than perfect sovereignty. That is, I don't care, let them govern themselves. I have no intention to govern them. But in terms of controlling this tiny area, who has control of the airspace, who has control of the ground passages, who can uh, root out terrorists, that will have to remain in Israeli hands. My friend of many years, Joe Biden, when he was vice president, said to me, but Bibi, that's not perfect sovereignty. And I said, you're right, Joe, but that's the only one, the thing that will work. That's what we learn in the Middle East. If Western powers vacate a territory, then the radical forces immediately take over. And the result is not peace, but horror. Iran takes over. The true nature of Iran has been unmasked for the entire world. You can see this horrific regime and what it does to its people. We don't want that replicated in the hills above Tel Aviv, 
or the neighborhoods of Jerusalem. It's just not going to happen. It's an imperfect piece. The world is imperfect, but it's the best you're going to get. You've previewed just about all the topics I want to I want to talk about with you there. Iran, President Biden. That's it. The wider, <laughs> you've previewed them, but we haven't got into them in quite enough detail, but also the white, the Abraham Accords and what other possibilities there might be. But one final question, if I may, on this new government, and then we'll move on. It has been reported, not least by the Wall Street Journal, that the Biden administration expressed strong opposition to the idea that the leader of the Religious Zionism Party, Mr. Smotrich, could have a role like defense minister. He hasn't been given that role, I should say. Did the Biden administration veto your formation of a government? No, not at all. In fact, they issued a formal statement saying that they're not going to object to this or that specific person, but they're going to look at policies, which I think is the, actually a, a fair statement and a sound statement, because that's how you deal with it. In democracies, we don't choose you know, the people elect. We deal with, and I deal with, anyone elected in any democracy including in the United States. I mean, we've had a very strong bond between Israel and the United States, between the people of America and the people of Israel. It's actually an unbreakable bond. And though I've had my disagreements with Republican presidents and Democratic presidents, that feeling of, how shall I say, mishpocha, that's a Hebrew-Yiddish word for family. We have disagreements in the family, but we're family. And we respect each other's democratic choices, and we deal with the governments that are elected. And we deal with them fairly well, I have to say with each other. We know how to deal with each other. One of the things you write about in your book is obviously the relations with the United States. And as you've just said, it is very striking that for years you argued for a kind of what's known in the US as sort of an inside-out policy towards the resolution of the Palestinian problem. That is that to end the centrality of the idea of Israeli settlements and of the West Bank, but actually to get normalization of relations with the rest of the Arab world, with the major Arab countries in the region. And that was, as you say, rejected by presidents of both parties. And then along, of course, came Donald Trump and actually agreed to that and actually implemented that. And then we got the Abraham Accords, essentially exactly in the, the mold of what you described. Can I just ask you about that? You already have these agreements with four Arab countries. You just talked about expanding that. Can we expect to see at some point, maybe in the term of your next uh, prime ministership, for example, normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia, or is that a bridge too far at this point? I think it'll be an extraordinary quantum leap over an existing quantum leap. The Abraham Accords were a quantum leap, and it has a lot to do with the courage and wisdom of the Arab leaders, the first one being uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed of uh, the United Arab Emirates, who um, courageously uh, shook my diplomatic hand, if you will, and we arranged this extraordinary peace, which would not have happened, frankly, without the tacit, and maybe not so tacit, approval of Saudi Arabia. Remember that two years before the Abraham Accords, Israelis began overflights over the airspace of Saudi Arabia. You know that's not accidental. When I won this election, my uh, close friend, Mohammed Saud in uh, Saudi Arabia, who's sort of my fan club there, he calls me up and he says, Bibi, congratulations, you're our prime minister. Now, you know that that's not going to happen. He's doing that in the Saudi and the internet there. And I suspect that if the Saudi government didn't want him to do that, he wouldn't do that, right? So obviously, Saudi Arabia did not disapprove, now I'm falling back on diplomatese, did not disapprove of the Abraham Accords. It would be an enormous pivot of history if we were able to make peace with Saudi Arabia, because I believe that it would effectively end the Arab-Israeli conflict. Remember that the Arab states comprise about 98% of the Arab population. The Palestinians comprise 2%. But their policy of rejecting any genuine compromise with the Jewish state in any boundary 
was used as a veto against breaking out to any peace with any other Arab country. I mean, we made peace with Egypt, with President Sadat and Menachem Begin, his stark breakthrough. That was many decades ago. 25 years ago, we made peace between Israel and Jordan, King Hussein of Jordan and Tzachak Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel. For 25 years, we couldn't get anywhere because people said, you must first solve the Palestinian problem before you break out to the Arab world. And I said, well, then we'll wait forever because the Palestinians are vetoing any peace. They want the dissolution of Israel, not a solution with Israel. So I went around it. It proved fortuitous. I was glad that President Trump agreed with me. By the way, it took me three years to persuade his people and the president himself that that's where we should go. But once we did, it just skyrocketed. I mean, right now, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are flying over Saudi Arabia to Dubai, to uh, Bahrain, to uh, to Abu Dhabi. Uh, billions of dollars of joint ventures, a warm peace, a peace between peoples, Israelis dancing in the streets of Dubai with Arabs. It's just incredible. But I envisioned that that would happen. I'll tell you the truth. I didn't envision it would happen with that speed and that remarkable affinity, but it's just a harbinger of things to come, I hope. And yes, I'll do everything I can to have peace with Saudi Arabia. What briefly is holding back the possibility of a peace and normalization with Saudi Arabia right now? It's a Saudi decision. So the deal is on the table exactly as it has been with these other Arab countries and the Saudis have just got to decide whether or not they take it. Is that right? Or are they trying to negotiate some extra concession or something on behalf of the Palestinians? Is it just literally up to them to sign up? Look, I haven't dealt with it, obviously, because I believe in the you have this uh, arrangement in the United States, one president at a time. Well, I believe in the principle of one prime minister at a time. And I'm not yet the prime minister. When I get in there, I'll look into the uh, possibilities of what we can do, how fast we can do it. I assure you we'll examine it. But ultimately, this is not achieved by, uh, you know, I, I believe in open covenants secretly arrived at. That sounds like a perfect diplomatic formula. We've got to take a short break there. But when we come back, we'll continue with Benjamin Netanyahu incoming and, of course, former Israeli prime minister. And we'll talk not only about Israel's immediate neighbors and its relations with the wider world, but also about Israel's own economic performance and how it's managed to become one of the most successful economies in the world. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm talking with Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel. Let's move on to Iran, if we may. You mentioned Iran, of course, then. You've talked a lot about it, and there's a lot of concern about it right now here in the United States, too. One of the fascinating things in your book is, of course, you recount your various discussions with American presidents, particularly President Obama, with whom you had profound disagreements on Iran. The Biden administration came in trying to resurrect the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that essentially lifts economic sanctions on Iran in exchange for some, what I think most of us would would say were fairly minor concessions in terms of its nuclear program. That obviously seems to be going nowhere. What's your sense here of Firstly, the threat from Iran, as we're getting all this information that it is accelerating its nuclear program. And secondly, what could possibly be done outside a JCPOA type arrangement to deter them from proceeding with that? Well, first, I think there's a change in Washington as I sense it. I've had direct talks with the uh, U.S. administration, but I sense a change 
because of the unmasking of Iran's true nature for the entire world to see, courtesy of the extraordinarily brave Iranian men and extraordinarily brave Iranian women who are fighting for freedom, for basic freedoms. And you can see the horrific nature of this regime, its murderous nature, it's killing them in the streets, and yet they stand up and protest for their rights. And I think that's changed attitudes everywhere, including in Washington, and that's good. We have to understand that the nuclear agreement does not stop Iran from pursuing its nuclear weapons program. It's not only because they cheat. It's because that even if they don't cheat, the agreement says that in three, four years, Iran will effectively have, with international approval, unlimited enrichment capability of uranium, the toughest part in manufacturing nuclear weapons. In the meantime, they're developing these tremendously advanced centrifuges under the JCPOA that will allow them to enrich the nuclear cores for 100 bombs. So it really paves Iran's path with gold to a nuclear arsenal, and that's wrong. Now you ask, how can you stop them? First of all, we have delayed them by actions that we took. I don't describe all of them. In fact, I don't describe any of them, except one. I sent the Mossad to the heart of Tehran. It raided Iran's secret atomic archive, bought half a ton of materials to Israel, and we conclusively showed that Iran was lying through its teeth. It was seeking to develop five nuclear bombs already 20 years ago, and it's seeking to do so now. How do you stop them? Well, we set them back, in my judgment, about a decade, but we haven't stopped them. There's only two ways to stop a rogue nation from having nuclear weapons. That is a combination of crippling economic sanctions and a credible military option. When I say that, you should be prepared to use the option if deterrence doesn't work. There have been five rogue states that have sought to develop nuclear weapons. The first, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, was stopped by a military action by Israel. The second, Syria, was stopped by a military action by Israel. The third, Libya under Gaddafi, was stopped by the threat of a military action by the United States. The fourth, South Korea, North Korea, rather, had signed the non-proliferation pact and so on, didn't do a damn thing, and they uh, continued to develop a nuclear arsenal. They were not under any credible military threat. So they now half of Asia is quaking in fear, and they may have the capacity soon, and possibly now, to reach the western seaboard of the United States with nuclear weapons. That is bad. As bad as that is, the fifth nation, Iran, is much worse. It's much bigger and stronger than uh, North Korea. It also has a theological thuggery that is governing it with this repression, and it has an ideology. They chant death to Israel, death to America, and death to all the infidels in between, and there are a lot of them. So if you want to protect the peace of the world, not only the security of Israel and the security of the Middle East, but the peace of the world, we must not allow this radical Islamic repressive regime to have nuclear weapons. Everybody will be in peril. How do you stop it? Crippling sanctions and a credible military threat. If you're not prepared to do it, you'll simply deceive yourselves with all these agreements, which they either cheat or keep and get to a nuclear arsenal without having to do anything except wait. We must not let Iran get nuclear weapons. That's my commitment. That's my main reason for going back into the, I would say, the messy bog of Israeli politics and climbing back on Israeli's greasy pole of politics. Right, back at the top of the greasy bowl again. Uh, it ain't that much fun, believe me. It's not <laughs> well, that you seem to, one, be very successful at doing it, and two, have a strong yearning to keep doing it. So there must be something about it that you find rewarding. But we've seen these extraordinary protests in Iran, very brave people taking to the streets. Probably many of them have been murdered by Iranian security forces. There continues to be, it looks like, you know, serious unrest. And there are some people who think this is a pretty serious threat to the regime. How do you think that affects 
Uh, again, I know I appreciate you know you haven't formed a government yet, so you're not privy to all of this information. But you're a very well informed man. You know what's going. On. How do you think that affects Iran's government, and in particular this issue of the nuclear program? Is it an opportunity here? Does it actually maybe does this force Iran perhaps as implausible as it may seem to maybe focus more on the economic needs of its people rather than on developing its nuclear program, or does it actually represent more of a threat to Israel in that under pressure domestically they may seek you know what often these dictatorial regimes do, which is sort of satisfaction by upping the ante in an international framework? No, I don't, I don't think they seek satisfaction. I think they seek immunity from um, foreign interference and maybe also the appearance of invulnerability domestically by parading uh, nuclear-tipped uh, warheads uh, the way the Soviet Union did you know, in Red Square, even though they were collapsing internally. I can tell you that there's a question now, and it's a new one. I think that these regimes succeed to survive as long as they control their stormtroopers. That is, as long as their stormtroopers are not infected by the desire for freedom, as long as they're not assaulted by their families who say, you're killing our neighbors, you're killing other people. When that happens, regimes collapse. Until that happens, they can hold on a very long time, a very long time. I would say that one of the things that really challenges a regime like Iran's is when the citizens can have unfettered information or less fettered information and they know what is happening. But what is happening in Iran today is truly extraordinary. And I, I must salute these brave people who are basically saying, and this is the first time they're saying it really since the Islamist revolution, which is close to half a century now. They're saying, down with this regime, we want freedom. And that's a reason for hope. Then moving on to quickly to Russia, which is not unrelated because Iran has been supplying, as we know, very important military equipment to Russia in its war with Ukraine. Now, you've enjoyed a good relationship over the years, I think it's fair to say, when you were years as prime minister with Russia, and particularly with Vladimir Putin. And you've argued that, you know, Israel needs to have a good relationship, obviously, with Russia because of its importance in the region and its importance generally in the world. You did say shortly before the election, I think, however, that you thought maybe Vladimir Putin may want to rethink what he's done in Ukraine. As you're about to take up the reins of office, how will you use your relationship with Vladimir Putin? to maybe try to get an early end to this war. I think most people in the United States and, and the West would agree, Russia ending its aggression against Ukraine. What approach will you take? Well, I'm not sure that I'm in a position to uh, be the fabled intermediary. Everybody has great aspirations. I'm going to solve this problem. I don't even know, and I haven't been briefed recently on the situation there, but the first thing I'll do is get a briefing. But I think that I'm not a, a solitary actor in this. There are people who've been dealing with this, other leaders, and I'd like to talk to them including my friend of many years, uh, President Biden. I'd like to talk to him, consult with him before I give any answer. I'm not even sure I'm in a position to do anything. I am in a position to protect the interests of Israel, and that is something that I'll do carefully and responsibly, given that you know that Israeli fighter pilots and Russian uh, fighter pilots are flying within spitting distance in the skies over Syria. So obviously we've calibrated our relationship with Russia to avoid any kind of military clash, the last thing we want is a Russian-Israeli war. I remember that from my military years. I described them in great length, by the way, in my military service in a special unit uh, some half century ago. But I remember we were shooting Russian planes out of the sky, and they were shooting our planes with their anti-aircraft weapons in along the Suez Canal out of the sky as well. Nobody wants to get back to that. From this question of maintaining our freedom of action over the skies of Syria to the broader question of how, if at all, I can uh, in any way contribute to ending this horrible war, this tragedy. There's some distance. I think I should consult with our people and consult with the other world leaders 
before I can give a credible answer to your question. Again, there's obviously a longstanding relationship too between Israel and Ukraine, with many of the Jewish diaspora from Ukraine obviously persecuted, who have made their way to Israel and have made a great success of their lives there. And of course, President Zelensky himself has issued a direct appeal for Israel to help. Is that something that is important to you? Yes, it is. Even though it's a tiny country, it's really one of the smallest countries in the world, and yet Israel has accepted an inordinate number, a disproportionate number of uh, refugees from Ukraine, Jews and non-Jews, into its territory. It's offered field hospitals. It's offered a humanitarian help. The question always arises, what about defensive military uh, weapons? No secret. It's been put forward to the present government, the outgoing government. They chose effectively not to do it. I'm sure it'll come to my desk, but before I make any decisions on that, I'd like to consult with our people too. One prime minister at a time. One of the topics you write about a lot in your book is the economic performance of Israel and the economic reforms that have taken place and which you were to some extent responsible for others too. I mean, it is striking, and as again as you point out, that for almost the first half century of its existence, Israel was pretty kind of pursued pretty socialist economic policies with, frankly, the sort of normal predictable results you expect when you do implement socialist policies, which is relatively weak economic performance. You have got a much more dynamic economy now. And again, you talk very proudly in the book about how Israel's GDP per capita is now greater than many of the G7 countries. It's one of the richest countries in the world. Again, it's through pursuing largely free market. Israel's got an incredibly dynamic tech sector. We know it's got an incredibly dynamic, modern, technologically advanced sectors of the economy. How important were those economic reforms in achieving that? And what do you look forward to in terms of future economic opportunities for Israel? Look, I think the transformation of Israel from a semi-socialist economy to a free market capitalist economy is one of the great achievements that I take pride in having led. And I'll I'll tell you, it wouldn't have happened without the genius of Israeli entrepreneurs, men and women. They're ultimately responsible for it. But technology and education by themselves do not produce wealth. If that were the case, Soviet Russia would have been one of the richest countries in the world because it had brilliant mathematicians, physicists, metallurgists, and the like. And of course, they were near bankruptcy. Technology and education do not by themselves produce wealth. Free markets do. The combination of free markets and high technology is unbeatable. I saw that Israel had high technology because of our military. Essentially, we were investing in our military, especially in military intelligence uh, that produced these fabulous capabilities that could go nowhere. My brother-in-law was a very gifted Air Force pilot, left the Air Force, became a technologist with a local high-tech company in Israel, didn't go very far, went to Palo Alto and uh, (laughs) made a fortune. But his son is back in Israel because the opportunities here are so incredible and he's doing very, very well. That's replicated all over the place. So I had the vision from a very early age, and especially from my years at MIT, where I saw the possibilities of the combination of technology, including military technology, which was hidden on the MIT campus. The NSA and the CIA were doing things there that people spoke in hushed tones about. But I could see what the combination of military intelligence and Route 128 and 495, these uh, blossoming uh, high-tech startups was doing. And of course, it was a third ingredient, and that was free markets. So I was committed to bring that same combination to Israel. I had to wait for a good crisis uh, when I was made finance minister, the peril of political death in the midst of a great economic crisis. I was given the job, which should have ended my career. And I decided to use that crisis to bring dozens and dozens of free market reforms that, by the way, cost me politically in the short run, but liberated the genius of Israeli entrepreneurs 
onto the world stage. And you're right, we have passed, uh, because of these market reforms, lower taxes, cutting government spending, reducing bureaucracy, you name it, all these things that uh, were very, very difficult to do. I mean, involved unbelievable political battles, which I describe in my book. But as a result, Israel has passed most of the countries of Western Europe, not Luxembourg, we're not a bank, but we have passed Britain, France, Japan, and most recently, Germany in per capita income. And the interesting thing about it, I want you to know, Jerry, is that our inequality actually went down. Part of the reforms that I had to do was to cut welfare allowances, which were completely unrestricted and were choking us. But that led to underprivileged sectors in our economy, Orthodox women, Arab men, and others, to join the job market. And as they entered the job market, they actually were making more money in this rising marketplace than they would get from welfare allowances. So as a result, not only did Israeli GDP per capita go up, but Israeli inequality went down to its lowest level in 20 years. So, you know, people say, oh, okay, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Not in Israel, actually. The poor got richer. Important lessons for some of those other countries to learn there. Perhaps I hope they're listening to that. Now, very briefly, uh, it's maybe a slightly odd question to ask as you're about to embark on yet another term in office uh, rather than leaving it. And this is, you know, you've been the longest serving Israeli prime minister. This is the third separate occasion you've gone from opposition into the prime ministership, into government. What do you hope to achieve? What's your primary objective? And I know nobody likes to talk about their legacy, and especially not when they're, again, when they're about to embark on government rather than leave it. But what do you want history to have judged to have been your greatest achievements as you enter this next term of office? Well, first, I have three immediate objectives. One is to block Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. Second, to expand the circle of peace and offer it a quantum leap, peace with the leading Arab countries that are still outside the circle of peace, the most important one being Saudi Arabia. The third thing is to continue to invigorate the Israeli innovation juggernaut. And there are so many areas of technology and development that I'm thinking about, but I won't enumerate it because it would take the five programs to discuss it. So I have these three goals. You ask, how do I want to be remembered? As someone who devoted his life successfully to protect the state of Israel and ensure its uh, prosperity and security in the coming decades. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for Free Expression. Thank you very much indeed for joining me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Please join us again next week when we'll have another deep exploration of the big issues that are shaping our world. Thank you and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.